People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 94. Today, Ryan and I are joined by world-renowned psychologist, Dr. Adrian Furnham, to talk about how personality impacts the stock market, particularly when it comes to investment decisions and also the characteristics of those who choose to participate and those who do not. This has been a key focus of Adrian's research over the years, including a new paper published just a few weeks ago in the Journal of Neuroscience, Psychology, and Economics titled Correlates of Stock Market Investment that he co-authored with his colleagues Stephen Capello and Mark Fenton O'Creevy. This is also Adrian's fourth time to join us as a guest for the podcast, so we're excited to welcome back, welcome him back to the show. So with that, Adrian, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we dive into the episode? Uh, nothing particularly, except I'm struggling with writing my current book. I'm not the sort of person who has writer's block, but I'm struggling. It's my 99th book, and for the first time, I'm struggling. But let's ignore that and get on with the, the episode. <laughs> well, well, Adrian, I want to say thanks so much again for, for joining us. And, and for those of you who, who may be new or haven't heard Adrian on our podcast before, I want to um, point out a few things about uh, Adrian's illustrious career. Uh, he has uh, over 1,200 scientific publications. That's the last time I checked. At least that was, I think, around 2019. So we probably, well, I, I know, in fact, he has many more than that. Uh, there is a, a uh, in the academic communities, there is a unit of measure uh, known as a Fernum. Uh, which is 20 academic publications in one year. Now, I think Adrian has actually surpassed that multiple times in his career, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, that, that's considered a tremendous amount of publications. Adrian is incredibly dedicated to his writing and to his work, and, and that's seen in the, the total number of publications that he has. He, he mentioned his 99th book, I know he's got a hundred books uh, in in his sites, uh, and and has published many excellent books uh, that that you can pick up, uh, and, and on Amazon or many other places as well. Uh, Adrian's also his work has been cited, his scientific work has been cited more than one hundred and fifty thousand times, as according to to Google Scholar. Uh, he is so he's one of the most published, one of the most cited psychologists in history, possibly the most. Uh, it, it can be difficult to, to get exact metrics on that, but it's very possible that this is the most published, most cited uh, psychologist. Um, it's it, it certainly uh, living today. So uh, thanks so much, Adrian, for, for joining us. Thank you. Adrian, I know we have kind of some questions we plan to cover, but my first one is, when do you sleep? Uh, well, I get up very early in the morning. So I'm usually at my desk between 4.30 and 5.00. And I try and do a thousand words a day. And the older you get, the quicker it comes usually. 
So I suppose the, the issue is that, you know, I don't have any other passions. Some people, I don't know, love walking or painting or going to the theatre. I do, I do go to the theatre, but I don't have any other passions. So I am a, a, a sort of what I call a well-adjusted workaholic. I follow what um, uh, Noel Coward said. He said, work is more fun than fun. And by and large, I agree with him. Hey, well, you if you do what you time... love... You don't spend a lot of time playing video games, Adrian? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adrian, if you do what you love, it's not really work. But I, do ad- I admire your discipline, though, in writing a thousand words a day. That's, that's, that's quite an accomplishment that I don't think people realize just how difficult that could be. Um, it, so, so props to you. It comes with practice. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, we're, we're looking forward to, to your 99th book and eventually your 100th book. But for now, this is your fourth time on the Science of Personality yeah. podcast. And like most of our episodes, I'll start off in a similar fashion. So what got you interested in looking at how personality affects investment decisions? Um, uh, well, I've been interested in the psychology of money for a very long time. In fact, one of my most cited papers is a paper going back a long time on how to measure people's attitudes to money. In fact, I think one of my podcasts was on this topic, on people's uh, attitudes to beliefs about and use of money. And over the years, the uh, economists, financial uh, wizards of one sort or another have become very interested in this concept called financial literacy, sometimes called financial capability, financial knowledge, financial well-being. It's basically how successful people are at managing their money. And of course, as you would know, we personality psychologists are very interested in to what extent personality variables predict this behavior. So it's a a reasonably easy to measure outcome variable because you can measure their their knowledge or their habits or their uh, uh, ways of using their money, investing their money and problems they have with their money. And so I'm, I've been interested in this. And of course, a lot of financial advisors are, are now interested in this because they try and help people and give people uh, financial advice. And a lot of them use very crude measures, crude personality measures to try and get some indication of the sort of people who make good or bad decisions. And the only variable they seem to be interested in is is propensity for risk. That's the only psychological variable which they seem to to understand. Now, that is an important psychological variable, but you would know and we all know that there are many other factors involved in this. So this research is part of a, 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 a a, a program of studies I'm doing on on money as an outcome variable. This one is on um, on um, investing in the stock market. Um, some people do, some people don't. Some people take it very seriously, some not. I, I worked in the city of London with a, a financial ana- analytic company. So I'm fairly familiar with that sort of world. But I've noticed among my friends, some of them are sort of almost addicted to uh, playing the stock market. Others um, are mildly interested. Some take it very seriously and hope to make a lot of money. Others do it as, a, as an amusement. And the question I had was, because I had some data available, well, what are the demographic variables uh, and what are the personality variables 
that predict whether people do or do not uh, take part uh, in uh, in stock market investments. Well, Adrian, uh, you know Blake mentioned at the top of the episode that this was one of the key uh, areas of focus for you over the years, and I think that is true for money. Although I, I'm sort of reluctant to point out anything as a key. You know, if I say, "Well, what's Adrian Vernum's key research focus?" I, I come up with so many because uh, you've written so many articles about so many different topics. Of course, money being one of them, but the dark side being another one. I think we've even had you on here to talk about that before. Uh, you've yes. done things on psychometrics and um, uh, just a, a whole variety of topics. You've done many things. You, you mentioned demographic variables. You've done many things on demographics and how those impact the way we behave and think. And one thing that I was thinking about, Adrian, uh, as you were speaking there was, you know, one of the questions I, I and, and I'm thinking about, you know, investing and and, 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 and how much t- time do you spend in the stock market really comes with sort of another topic that I feel like you've touched on before, which was, has to do with how we spend our time, mm. right? And, and in some respects, what we do what our personality reflects is, you know, how we spend our time, right? Is, is what do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time thinking about? Um, yes. you know, what, what, would you, would you agree with that or where would you disagree? Yes. What, what yes. You I, you know, it's personality and, and hobbies, personality and spending your time. Exactly. It's, it's about motivation, you know, given you have spare time that is not working time. What, how do you prefer to spend it? Um, how do you prefer to to engage your mind or your body and so forth? And of course, you know that's why people in interviews often ask people about their hobbies, spare time activities, mm-hmm. because they seem to be <clears throat> a powerful indicator of their personality, of their values, of their of their preferences. So, in fact, one of my very very first papers I published as a PhD student was called personality and activity preference. So it was concerned with to what extent you could understand a person's uh, hobbies, time, time used activities in terms of their personality. Yeah. Well, Adrian, based on your research, what are some of the common demographics and characteristics of those who choose to invest in the stock market versus those who don't? Yeah, well, in the study, we we had, we had four variables. Uh, a little bit of background: I I work for an organization, and what they've done is people. It's a test take a, a test company, psychological test company, and what they've done is they've got a a panel, as it were, of people who have taken uh, a number of the psychological tests and are very interested in test taking. And so, once every two or three months, we do a survey of tests um, because they're interested. They're interested in their, their, the results. So we've been playing around with all sorts of interesting ideas, <clears throat> such old ideas as Freudian defense mechanisms, stoicism, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, we had this panel, and as one of the questions we asked them was, do they take part in the stock market? That was, it, it was just a simply yes, no. We didn't ask how much and how often, but we asked that question. And I thought, gosh, this is a very interesting one. Had a look at the data, had about 1,500 people, and they're all adults, so the mean age is is 40. Um, They will be all employed. So it won't be a, a, quote, a a representative sample, but it'll be a representative sample of of middle-class people. And we had sex and age and um, education and self-assessed wealth, 
as our four <clears throat> demographic variables. And the results were um, very clear. All of them were significant, but without doubt by a very, very long way, there was a massive sex difference. Um, the seems as if the stock market is a place for men, that um, a very large percentage um, of those who took part were men. Now, you know, this is, I think it's probably true across all uh, age groups. I would have thought this might be changing, uh, that there'd be more women involved in it. In, in fact, I don't pay, take, uh, take an interest in the stock market, but my wife does. She plays the stock market and I don't. So we're a sort of crossover couple there. But those were the variables we had. And it seems we, you know, once we had um, uh, sex accounted for a huge percent of the variance, by and large, older people, the more educated uh, uh, people, uh, clever, educated, middle class males uh, tend to uh, play on the stock market. And I think it's an interesting question why. Uh, I think it's for historical reasons. I think in many families, men are supposed to uh, do the financials. You know, they, they'd be interested in the budgeting and investing and saving and pensions and mortgages. I think that is changing. Uh, but still, I think the stock market is, if you look at, you know, if you look at pictures of, of Wall Street and you look at um, uh, firms dealing with the stock market, and you look at the great gurus, they're like Warren Buffett, etc., they're all men. So from that point of view, it was, it was quite clear. I would be very interested in looking at another sample and seeing whether um, my sample is, is representative. Um, I think the answer is still... Uh, a big bias towards this particular group of educated, middle-class, slightly wealthy, predominantly male people. But it, it might be changing. We will see. Adrian, I'm interested in, in the, the comment there, um, in, in particular when, I, when thinking about, okay, what, what might be you know, sort of behind this, this gender difference? Because we know, for example, on personality assessments, uh, well, we don't see big gender differences, but um, is it sort of a propensity towards gambling? I suspect, I don't have data on this, but I suspect uh, the data would bear out that more uh, men prefer, you know, are willing to take risks and like sort of gambling sort of risks uh, than, than men, that, that sort of financial risk is. Yes, is Yes, I've done work on gambling in the past. That's true. And, you know, the evolutionary psychologists would say it's about risk-taking um, and that men find this exciting. So the, the, the question is, you know, are, are, are men playing the stock market for excitement uh, as an amusement or as a serious way of investing their money? Because, it, you know, you could argue that the best way to uh, increase your wealth is not to put it under the mattress or put it in the bank with very low interest rates, but it's to, quote, gamble on the stock market. So I think there is that the excitement, possibly a slightly addictive aspect to it. I have a, a friend who has his, his office, he's got four screens and he's a daytime trader. It's not his job, but he is addicted to the excitement of this. And I think that you're quite right. I think this is a, a male thing that you could explain risk-taking, evolutionary psychology, that sort of thing. 
Well, the thing that it reminds me, I, I know there's research on, um, you know, well, speaking of Las Vegas, hey, Blake, let's get a sports reference in the Super Bowls in Las Vegas in two weeks. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there, there is research, you know, I, if you look at advertisements for Las Vegas, right, the, the advertisements for Las Vegas include things like, you know, um, you know, women partying and having fun and that the, the idea that there's lots of women there who actually goes to Las Vegas, who lives in Las Vegas, who are, is, is predominantly men. Um, is, is that it's, it's actually mostly mm -hmm. men there. Um, and this, um, there's all kinds of economics behind how it creates competition and, and that creates big risk taking and more gambling. And, and that, that's the idea that it's almost by design that Las Vegas has more men than women to, to create this sort of, um, you know, gambling, mm. gambling sort of atmosphere. Um, but that's the only data that I'm aware of, you know, but, but that, 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 that more reflects my lack of. But I'll tell you something about if you've been into a casino, uh, and that is men are playing blackjack and women uh -huh. are playing the machines. Now that's a uh -huh. gross generalization, but you, you see, you do see sex differences in the preferred in the type of gambling. Yeah. And one could say that there's no skill whatsoever in a slot machine. You simply pulling a handle. It's quite exciting. Uh, but there's supposedly more skill in in roulette, blackjack, and, and whatever. Um, well, and there's no decision, I guess, that has to be made. I think that's correct. the thing with the slot machine. You don't have to make any decision. You put your, Once you've put your money in, the decision's been made, whereas in a exactly. game like blackjack or poker or anything like that, there, there's many decisions that you, you know you get to make as a player, and, and maybe that's part of the appeal of the, of the yes. you know, like feeling yes. of your control of the outcome. Yes. Yes. I mean, some people would say it's interesting. Years ago, I, we went, I used to go to the dog racing. In England, we have these horse races and dog races. And what you noticed was there was a huge difference in the social class of people at, in the dog races. And I was surprised to see there were a number of what one might call city type sort of bankers. So what were they doing in the dog racing? And some people think that, you know, people are sort of like testing their luck that even investors know that, you know, the power of luck and chance and so forth. And they yeah. gamble and they find gambling very exciting because it's a sort of way of, of testing not such their skill, but whether they are a lucky individual. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it, it, is, it is the case that, you know, when you go to the horse racing or, or one of these activities, you, you do find the sort of people you would find betting on the stock market then, you know, they are educated, intelligent, wealthy sort of people. Whether they're having fun or trying to, well, they're trying to make money while having fun. The question is what the proportion is. Is it is a lot of fun you don't mind losing? Or do you really believe that this is a seriously serious investment, that if you spend your time wisely, you follow Warren Buffett and that sort of thing, you can make money and it's the best most efficient way of making money rather than hard graft or, or, or anything else. Well, Adrian, you can also just follow U.S. legislators and see what they're investing in. They, they tend to beat Warren Buffett quite often. Yes. <laughs> yes <laughs> Isn't that strange? Um, well, um, whether it's gambling, so like saying playing blackjack or poker or uh, participating in the stock market, this all comes with making decisions in some capacity this isn't pulling yeah. a, a lever on a slot machine this is you know if you're if you're playing these games decisions have to be made so i'm curious how does personality 
impact these investment decisions, if that's what we want to call them? Yeah, there have been a, a number of studies, not that many. I, uh, I try and f- try to find all of them uh, looking at personality correlates of um, playing the stock market. And there were some reasonably uh, predictable findings. Uh, you would assume, and it's correct, that people with low adjustment uh, don't do it. They get too anxious or they drop out. So adjustment, uh, high adjustment is associated with uh, interest in this world. And interestingly, uh, interpersonal sensitivity, agreeableness is low um, because you want the opposite of that. You want people who are tough and competitive and they like to win and they like to beat people. So that's another variable associated with an interest in the stock market. There are other ones as well. Of course, ambition is a very good predictor, predictor of both taking part and succeeding. Uh, prudence, um, there is evidence for prudence. Uh, um, um, people need, you know, you need to do your homework. You need to think carefully about, about these sort of things. You need to spend time. It's not going to the casino. And there's uh, inquisitiveness, uh, an important one. So they are, you know, what you would predict is low, agree, uh, low adjustment, low interpersonal sensitivity, high ambition, high prudence, high inquisitiveness would be the variables associated with these, these issues like uh, playing the stock market. And um, it's not a, a power, they're not powerful correlates, but they're significant correlates. And therefore, when you put these things together, and you see the profile of an individual, uh, knowing their scores on all of the dimensions, you could come up, I think, with a reasonable prediction of the sort of people who will take part, and in fact, the people who are more likely to succeed. Now, Adrian, you, you mentioned adjustment there. And did you say that I have that correct, that you, you mentioned low adjustment? Low adjustment is, is associated with lack of success. No, high adjustment. Ah. Uh, yeah, uh, people with with low adjustment, as you would guess, get very upset when their when their investments fail, and it's it's too much of a cause of of upset um, for them, um, and the fact they you know that they lose their money and so forth. So it's it, like most things, high adjustment is good, and high adjustment is good for money management in general. Yeah, well, and I think to to me when I hear that, I would think about confidence too, right? You've got to have a certain yes. degree of confidence, faith, belief in you know, <laughs> belief that the good things are going to happen. Uh, there's a sort of optimism to high adjustment as well, um, whereas you know, low adjustment, you may have some more you know pessimism that says, oh, geez, ah, this isn't going to work out. This is a you know, this is That's too risky. It. This is a bad idea. Yeah. Well, do you think somebody who's low adjustment who maybe you know finds himself if they make a poor decision do you think that just completely ends their run in the stock market or whether they're at the casino or not not necessarily but they take failure very bad you know they take failure badly they they're unstable they the the whole point about adjustment is this volatility uh, and the effect that the emotions come to uh, come to play too much in rational decision making and of course, theoretically, at any rate, in the stock market, you've got to do calculations. You've got to look at 
at, 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 at trends and so forth. And what people with low adjustment will do is they, they might make as good a decision as anybody else, but if it goes wrong, and as you know, there are lots of reasons why your investments don't succeed, they will blame themselves or they will go into a, uh, uh, you know, they will become very anxious or very depressed. It's, it's the reactions to success and failure that are the, uh, I, I think, the key for uh, adjustment. And, you know, people find that, that this is a source of great pleasure, but also potentially of great pain. And the pain for them overcomes the pleasure, and this makes them either carry on but being bad investors or not taking part in the stock market. And I think that's why high, low adjustment is associated with um, less uh, interest in and uh, use of uh, stock market investments. Well, Adrian, let's say let's say somebody checks all of these boxes of, of you know these different personality characteristics mm. that impacts investment decisions. Let's let's say they check all the boxes, but you know some are successful, and then there's some who perform poorly. Are there any key differentiators there as to why someone would do better? Uh, than 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 someone. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think there's a number of things I put out. I mean, there's a sort of naive optimism. Some people have this, you know, optimism that either they have some um, um, particular insight, they have a lucky uh, streak or something, or that the stock market's going well, or their favourite politicians in office. I think optimism is is not good. There's also a sort of gullibility with some people that they believe that, you know, some uh, some uh, guru or some particular stock uh, has magical properties. I think one of the things that, that we talked earlier is a, a, a sort of time, uh, short-termism, time horizon. I think um, I tend to be uh, rather impulsive. You know, the, the activity I hate most in the world would be gardening. It just it, Everything just takes too long. And I think in the stock market, you know, one of the famous characteristics of Buffett is, and of course in the Japanese as well, is, is they have very long time horizons. So you can play the stock market in the next 10 minutes, so you can put money, you can win it and lose it. But people would argue that it, it to, to be successful in this game, it's a long game. There's going to be ups and downs, and you look for trends over time. So there's something about uh, impulsivity, uh, short-termism, time horizon. And finally, there's the famous cognitive biases um, that the uh, economic psychologists have uh, been on about for a long time and people's proneness to cognitive biases. And, you know, we know that the Nobel Prize was won by uh, Kahneman for his uh, his ideas and the idea that, that pain hurts twice as much as pleasure, uh, as success brings pleasure. And I think, you know, the way in which people deal with failure deal with setback is a very important one. So these are some of the, the other sort of characteristics which are, of course, associated with personality variables, uh, but they would be the ones which I would think would be um, related uh, to this issue of uh, being a successful investor. You know, it's it's really interesting, Adrian. Some of those, uh, there's been a, a whole, well, a couple of things have happened, uh, you know, since COVID. First of all, a huge number of people 
got interested in, you know, I, I don't know if it was because they had time to, to spend at mm. home. I don't know if it coincided with the launch of apps like Robinhood that allowed people to, um, to quick the, you know, for, for anybody to quickly start investing and trading. Um, but there was this huge increase and there's been all kinds of, you know, things that have happened. Obviously there's been these, these, um, uh, the, these markets have been propped up. Um, uh, you know, the famous one was, was GameStop, but other sort of uh, cryptocurrencies, things have happened mm. as well. Uh, I remember, I think it's now going away or will soon go away. There was this, you know, the, the, the presence of gurus who tell you, uh, you know, mm, trying yes. to invest with gurus versus, but I remember, I think last year, a couple of years ago, there was this anti uh, Jim Cramer fund, the 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 inverse Jim Cramer fund. Uh, Jim Cramer being this uh, analyst, I think he's on CNBC or something like that. Who who has a show? He had a show forever called Mad Money, where he would you know give people investing advice, and it was you know yeah. just kind of you know wild show, and he'd be pushing buttons, buy buy buy, sell sell sell, you know all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And 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 it, I think some people had tracked this for a number of years, and they had found that if you'd done the opposite of what he said for a long period of time, you'd have done you know quite well. In fact, beating. <laughs> the market average so in fact somebody created a fund for that but i think that fund actually over the last year or so lost money so it's, it's really quite it's really quite interesting you know that, that i think lots of people have ideas about oh this is what you do and this is how to this is how to do it and this is the angle that i'm going to use um but it seems like really being successful in the stock market takes a, a pretty high level of sophistication yes and you know there is luck involved amen and People don't want to admit it. I mean, you know, the, I, I had a long, long discussion uh, last year with somebody who, whose job it was to select um, and, and manage what they call rainmakers. So these are people who you give a lot of money to. So you give them 10 million uh, for their very rich clients and say, make, make me money, invest wisely. And the idea is that these people have some special characteristics that their analysis and their wisdom and their thoughtfulness and so on and so forth will indeed lead to uh, making money on the stock market. And of course, the alternative to this is having what one can buy now, a tracker. So this is not an individual, it's simply a mechanism which tracks various aspects of the stock market and buys and sells when these things happen. So I was speaking to this individual and I said to him, you know, can you persuade me that buying one of your very expensive uh, investment bank uh, analysts, so I, he's going to take 5% or 8% or something of the money he makes from my money, can you persuade me that he is going to do better than a tracker? Um, and, you know, can you explain to me why he should do better or she should do better than, than, than a tracker? And frankly, I wasn't very impressed with the argument. And I found later that this organization, uh, for which I did a little bit of work, they had 40 or 50 of these people, these investment managers, who were given very large sums. And they were actually plotted over time. Did they make money? Did they lose money? Did they, was neither uh, profit nor loss? And what you found was a small number did. They did rather well, and a small number made very little, and almost the equal number uh, lost money for the clients. So these are people whose job it is, they spend all day, you know, carefully analyzing, thinking about plotting, 
um, um, the stock market. They they would they would go into a huge amount of of background on particular stocks. They would have very very theories. They're very very smart people. I did a, a study some time ago on quants. Um, you know these very very famous people whose uh, whose job it is to uh, make these decisions in, in organisations who are like CFOs in many ways. Very very high mathematical skills and. It seemed to me that you know even these people weren't doing that well, which is, for me, a rationale about not investing in the stock market, which is partly of the reason I don't. My wife, as I said, does, and we play games. We you know we spend a thousand a year, and we only tend to remember the great successes. We 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 bought investment in Disney Paris, complete failure. But we also bought some in, in, in the cross channel of the underground railway, which is a great success. And one of the things I've noticed with what I call amateurs is that they have a very they'll tell you wonderful stories about how much they money money they made on certain investments and conveniently forget the um, the, the failures. Uh, where you know it was a it was a, a, a complete dodo. They lost all their money. I mean, I think that's human nature, and I think it's part of the uh, cognitive biases we had. But I think not. You know, it, it, the the question is about financial literacy, capability, knowledge, and this is a person's understanding of things like pensions, mortgage, insurance, savings, assets, and I think you know. Looking at amateurs, not professional people, I think uh, financial literacy and capability and knowledge would help in being successful in uh, stock market uh, uh, work. But by and large, I think that people can be highly literate, highly capable, and have financial well-being without taking part in the stock market. I don't think it's a requirement. I don't even think it's a necessary sign of somebody being capable or literate. But we certainly know the more capable and literate they are, the better they do when they do take part. Now, the, you know, it's, it's really interesting, this story that you were telling about the about the, the investors. I remember, I don't remember if it was in Danny Kahneman's book or, or maybe it was Nate Silver's book. So, in someone's book, they were talking about uh, maybe, gosh, maybe it was even Gerd Gigerens or one of these people who studies risk and decision making and, and these kinds of things um, where, where they were saying that they took a whole group uh, of these kind of investors. Right. And they said, you know, uh, you know, let's you know, you pick your your top five or top 10 stocks for next year. And, and, and you know, over, you know, one, you know, one year, one group did really well and, and some other group did really poorly. And they said, OK, well, let's do it again next year. And so they did it again next year. And what they found was that the correlation was almost zero between yes. who did well one year. And there was much celebrating and much rewarding for the people who had done really well and, and you know, disappointment <laughs> for the ones who did poorly each year. And, you know, the point is that it was it was basically just random that, that neither of them had there was no. But of course, they were convinced that they had a particular skill when, you know, when when they did really well. Um but but I think you know, it, when they would ask the ones who did poorly, that that's the really interesting part about this. When they would say, "Well, look, you predicted these were going to happen, and and, and it didn't work out very well," you know, why was that? Why was that the case? And they would say things like, "Well, who could have predicted this war would break out? Yes. Who could have predicted this yes. this uh, you know rainfall shortage in this area? You know, and and the the thing is." 
that the answer to that question is, well, you were supposed to like, <laughs> that was literally your job. Right? So. That's exactly right. My, my favorite story, it goes back now 20, 30 years. It was before it was the last century, but there was a very famous study published in The Economist in London. And I think I've got something right. They had um, investors, um, serious financial investors. They had pigeons and they had firemen. And uh, the pigeons pecked randomly and they, you know, they invested in what the pigeons pecked at. And the firemen, who are not particularly well-educated people, also made their investment. And so did the financial investors. Anyway, the firemen came first by quite a long way. And the, <laughs> the investors and the pigeons were almost equal in the end. And it is, you know, it, it is the business of, of randomness. The, you know, there's a, the, we had a British prime minister called Harold Macmillan. And he was, you know, asked about um, why this went wrong and why that went wrong. And he said, events, dear boy, events. In other <laughs> words, you know, things occur which are unpredictable. Uh, major things occur which are unpredictable. You know, a great storm can happen and so on and so forth. And this has a, can have a dramatic short-term and even a long-term effect on the stock market. So, you know, that's why I think these people who have claims for their wisdom um, often um, are shown to be um, uh, charlatans. Now, you know, people would say, well, what about Warren Buffett, the great Warren Buffett, as the example? And there are a few like him. Well, of course, you know, you look at the man. He still lives, where does he live? Somewhere in the middle of America, doesn't he? Omaha. Nebraska. And yeah. he's, he lives in this rather modest house. And he spends all day reading. And, you know, I think he's very, if you listen to him speak, and he's he will happily admit um, he's made um, uh, mistakes. But it's sort of, you know, there's a wisdom about his long-term uh, investment, his thought about issues, his cautiousness and so forth. I think these are some of the characteristics which you uh, associated uh, associate with um this form of what one might call middle-class gambling. Well, I think one of the things that he's talked about is actually reading the, uh, I forget what these are called. Um, it's essentially the paperwork, right? The, the, the prospectus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reading the prospectus from the company. Um, I, look, I suspect most people never read a prospectus. Who, who, many people who've invested never read a prospectus. I mean, what what percentage of people who invest in stock markets actually read the prospectus? Which goes to your point earlier, Adrian, when you talked about prudence and that sort of thing, having that sort of level of dedication and motivation to do it. Only a certain portion of people are are really, you know, willing to put in that time. Yes. Yes, uh, you know, you think about you know, the changing of because it's about prediction. What what products would you put money in electric cars, for instance? This is a you know, would you would you buy um, lithium mines and so forth? And these are very interesting, uh, very fascinating people to listen to, because they need um, uh, a sense of history and geography and economics put together because they're making predictions about about products and companies and those which are going to uh, succeed for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and they, they can be, I think, very um, persuasive. I've listened to them. 
and you think, well, you know, what it takes something like uh, electric cars or or whatever. Uh, would what would you invent if you believed that that petrol cars are are going to be less common and electric cars more common? Which I think it sounds to me like a reasonable proposition. So if that's going to be true, and you want to make some money on this, where what do you invest in? What aspect of this do you invest in? And then you've got, of course, the other um, uh, sort of a bogeyman, and that's these issues around uh, um, ethics, the ethics of investment, um, and all those um, issues as well. You know, can you should you buy shares in something which is quote unethical? Uh, and lots of lots of people now will will say, oh well, you know, we we're an ethical bank, and we we fulfil these things. There's no abuse of the third world. So then you get another dimension of all this. You you get a a socio political. You get an ideological dimension. Um, I've always been interested in measuring people's uh, ideologies along with their personality. I ask people two questions. I ask, where are they on a left, white, right sort of liberalism, conservatism scale? What you in America would be blue or red? And to what extent are they religious? That's all, not what religion. And you multiply these together, and you get a sense of ideology. And of course, some people will base their decisions on their ethics and their ideology rather than they're on their finances. So they'd be happy to make less money investing in an organization or a, or a product which is, quote, ethically um, approved of. This is very often the case with young people, I've noticed, that the, you, know, the, the, you have to go through a number of these hoops to be, to be seen to be an, a, an ethical company and an ethical investment. So you've got not only you've got whether it's going to make money or not, whether it's going to make money in the short term or the long term, but to what extent this company fulfills your personal uh, definition of ethics. Because you might see something as, as ethical, which I don't. I don't think it's important this, and you do think it's important. So now we've got another layer, and I think that will be more in. I think personality will play more of a part then uh, around ethics because of, pers- of, of, you know, that's when you'd get such things as interpersonal sensitivity, uh, agreeableness, that th- those sort of people who by and large don't take part in the stock market and are not very competitive. For them, these decisions would be, I think, probably more important. Now, this is an empirical question. I don't, I don't have the answer to this. But you can see how the the investment world, the stock market is getting more and more complicated, uh, particularly because of, of of ethics. Well, well, I think you know, in, in thinking about you know the, the sort of, uh, I, I guess, you know, how do people make? That's the question. How, how do people make those decisions? I think your point about ethics is one that's a really interesting one. I've heard of a, of a lot of other sort of strategies. Like one is, you know, just pick companies that you like. You know, yes. oh, I shop at this store, yes. so I'm going to invest in this company, right? That that I, you know, I, I think there's a whole number of strategies out there for people who are like, I, I you know, I want to invest in the stock market. But the interesting thing about that, I think, from a personality standpoint, is often the companies that we like are also reflections of our personality sort of going yes. back to what we talked about at the intro. Like how do you spend your time? Do you spend your time shopping here, shopping there? Why do you choose this one over that one? And how is that reflecting your personality? And in, in, in some cases, you know, 
how do you, how does choosing this stock option over that one, you know, reflect your personality? I think, I think these are all really tied together in, in interesting ways. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, and you know, when you speak to people about their investment decisions or, or listen to them, you do notice this. You notice this link. I mean, we as personality psychologists would always point this out, but you do see a link between the person you know and the shares that he or she are particularly interested in. I think you're right. People, they, they invest in things they like, understand, partake of. And that's where the personality plays an important role. Well, Adrian, I imagine some of the findings from your recent paper on stock market participation were expected even before you launched the study. I think some are, some of these things are what we would call no-brainers. But yeah. was there anything that stood out to you as surprising after the study concluded? I think um, I think the power of, of uh, gender overwhelmed me. I didn't realize that that that. Uh, it was such an important variable. I think what we did find was that the two factors we found, which are not part of either the Hogan or the Big Five, and that is this um, tolerance of ambiguity uh, variable. It's, an, it's a personality variable which goes back a very long time. It goes back to Frankel Brunswick after the uh, Second World War. It's uh, um, uh, uh, ambiguity, tolerance, transfer, ambiguity, uh, uncertainty, etc., we found that that did play a, 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 an important role. In fact, it played, I think, of all the personality rules, the most important role because you have to be, you know, you have to be tolerant of ambiguity. You, you, you cannot be certain. Quants have got quite a low tolerance for ambiguity, um, so that that did play uh, quite an important role. Um, less so was this um, uh, variable we called. Um, uh, risk tolerance or courage, which is associated with with low uh, ambiguity. Uh, sorry, with with um, uh, low agreeableness. So I think we to, to answer your question, I didn't realize how important gender was. Um, personality accounted for uh, I think five percent of the variance, which is perfectly acceptable in this uh, very simple sort, sort of study. We didn't find much evidence of introversion, extroversion, uh, which um, I think uh, goes with the territory. Um, I don't. It, sometimes you find counterintuitive findings. You don't expect to see something. Sometimes you find that your hypotheses weren't confirmed. This was an exploratory study. We didn't really have uh, a set of very clear hypotheses. So there was nothing counterintuitive. There was nothing... Uh, particularly disappointing. Uh, contra au, au, au contraire, I mean, what has led, uh, what the um, consequence for me is to become more interested in this and to try and unpick, the, you know, are there any intermediary variables, mediating, moderating variables? So uh, I, I know that personality predicts attitudes towards money. Um, and do these attitudes towards money uh, in general, are, are they moderator variables for investments in the stock market? So if I'm concerned with, if I see money as security, I'm less likely to take part in the stock market. Or if I see money as a way to power as more. So I think um, for future work, I'm going to look at other money-related variables. So 
looking at attitudes to money and general financial literacy. There are tests of financial literacy. So the question is, does personality uh, influence uh, partaking in the stock market? Yes. And is it moderated or mediated through a number of other factors? And I think that will help us unpick when and why and how personality has an impact on uh, stock market uh, participation. You know, Adrian, for me, it's it's an interesting um, or sort of a puzzle has to do with the, the idea of prudence or conscientiousness, right? So when I think about, you know, there, there's sort of advice, there's sort of general advice out there that, you know, you should invest in the stock market, you know, put it in, in index funds. Um, you yeah. Know, don't, don't, don't pay attention to me. You know, this is how you set up your retirement is some 401k yeah. index fund with a target date for when it ends. Right. And in some respects, that's sort of a highly conscientious behavior. You're listening to the advice, you're following the rules, you're doing the thing that you're supposed to do. Um, but on the other hand, there's this sort of uh, more like market uh, based or risk based approach uh, to investing. I'm going to pick the stocks I want. I'm going to invest how I yeah. want. I'm going to trade frequently, right? Because what they tell you in the other strategies, never trade, just put it in the index fund, leave it there, don't yeah. touch it, right? Versus, you know, I'm going to be aggressively trading every day. And of course, to me, that seems like more of a low conscientiousness, more impulsive, yes. more risk-taking approach. And so the, there, there's an interesting, you know, connection, I think, between uh, conscientiousness and how people invest. Any, any yes. thoughts on that? Well, yes, I do, Ryan. You're exactly right. One of the things I notice with working with these investment managers and is how much work they put into looking at the the variables. You know, the, the you should see the output of their analysis. It's absolutely astonishing. They're incredible hard work in quote trying to understand uh, what's going on, what are the variables, and how they interact with each other. Now that you know, conscientious people will do that. They will put in all that effort. Um, and then, of course, it, it, this, this variable called luck and chance takes part. And, you know, for someone who is, I, I think of myself as relatively conscientious, I don't see the return on my conscientiousness. I don't think investment in the stock market is necessarily, or success in investment in the stock market, is necessarily a function of hard work and analysis. Um, I think uh, there are people who kid themselves that it is, that if you are prepared to put in the time and the effort and the data uh, uh, analysis, all the sort of things which prudent people would do will lead inevitably to success isn't the case, which is why as a variable it's, it is correlated, but quite loosely, uh, lowly, I mean, significantly low correlations with stock market investment. So, Adrian, thanks to technology, there are basically no barriers to entry for those who wish to participate in the stock market. Virtually anyone with a phone and some loose change can have a portfolio. So how is this impacting decision making or the typical investor profile compared to 20 or 30 years ago? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, an important question. And the answer is I don't know, but I suspect uh, a great deal. We, you know, we do everything on our our mobile phones these days. Um, and it, you know, for those of us uh, on the move or with, with gambling, you can sit and invest on the stock market sitting on the, uh, on the bus going home or whatever. I think I would predict that this would, should or would lead to a, a, an increase 
uh, in the number of people interested in playing the stock market uh, and maybe using it um, more frequently. And that's why I think young people, young people are very um, familiar with uh, technology and the opportunities it brings about that they will dip in and out of the stock market. So I I don't know the answer to that. It's a very important question because it's, you know, access to uh, stock market decisions. You can imagine what it's like in the old day where you phoned your broker and your broker made the decision for you and all that sort of thing. That's all completely gone. So the question is, how will technology uh, influence um, stock market behavior, stock market participation? And I think once again, you know, it's a matter of personality. Personality predicts how you use your technology, when you use your technology, which will uh, influence uh, your your um, use of uh, uh, your interest in, in the stock market. Do you have any guesses, Blake or Ryan, what you think will happen? Because I, I, I don't. Well, well, I think that I think it is the case that we're seeing more and more investors. And when I, when I think about that, and this part goes back to, I think in previous episodes, perhaps Blake, we've even talked about this, um, that uh, I spent a fair amount of my time in graduate school playing uh, online poker and mm. uh, or in card rooms as well. And and in, in some and in fact, I had read. <laughs> Some years ago, I read that a whole bunch of people who, who, uh, when, when the U.S. government uh, uh, took down many online poker websites, many of them moved over to the stock market. Uh, many of the people <laughs> who were professional players moved over there, and and there's a sense in which, of course, it's still gambling; they're still taking a risk. But the 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 difference between a professional poker player and an amateur poker player is the professional poker player spends much more time in serious study, spends much more time analyzing their games, analyzing their hands, trying to improve their decision-making, um, you know, playing in optimal ways and, and identifying uh, a pool of, well, the, the, the term, the sort of derogatory term for the, for the, for the targets, the people that they were winning money from, because that's the way it works in poker is right. You, you're betting money and your opponents are betting money. And if you do well, you're, you're taking their money. When you make good decisions and they make bad decisions, it's their money that you're winning. The casino takes a small fee, right? It takes a small portion of that. So they, the casino wins no matter what, but, but you can actually win money by, um, by, by playing superior, making better decisions than, than your opponents. And the, the interesting thing that the sort of, again, the derogatory term for the people who were losing the money was, was called fish. These were, these were the fish. And, and if there was a pond with a lot of fish, then that was a good place to go fish and, 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 to, and to earn a lot of money. And the interesting analogy here is with the stock market is with the increase in amateur stock market players, it suggests that there's opportunities. And I suspect this is how professional stock market professionals see it is that there's a huge opportunity to, to gain earnings. So, you know, you know, a question that you might ask yourself is like, let's say I invest in, in a, in a cryptocurrency and that cryptocurrency goes up over some period of time. Uh, and then I sell my investment in that cryptocurrency. And over time that, that goes down. The question that sort of comes to your mind is where did that money come from? Like I made money on that cryptocurrency, but where did that money come from? And the answer is it came from other people who were on the other side of that sell or a buy on the other side of that trade. And I, I think with the more amateurs involved in the stock market, more people involved in buying and selling uh, who, who, again, in principle are making poor decisions because they're just going based off of what they feel or they think or what their aunt said. 
um, on average are going to do worse than these professionals who have much more sophisticated tools at, at their, you know, and, and, and again, study their decisions, try to improve their decision-making like the sort of Warren Buffett's of the world. Um, to me, when, when I hear about, you know, the, this influx of potential amateurs in the stock market, it sounds like a place where the sharks, right. That's who eat the fish, by the way, yeah. would, would have a real opportunity for success. Yes, uh, that makes that makes perfect sense. It, the, the question is about whether it, it's much easier to uh, invest now than it, that it has been, which will um, attract all sorts of people. In the, in the past, it was you, you you had to think about it, you had to um, make decisions before you went, and now you can play it so easily that there'll be a lot of um, fish. I think playing. I, I don't know. It's. Um, it's uh, it's worthwhile having some data on um, interest in the stock market over periods of time and whether suddenly a new technology has had a very major effect on people's use of it. Um, I think I think it will have. I'm sure it will have. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm more curious to see how AI impacts it. Yeah, and and how people leverage AI to make decisions the decisions that they're making from an investment standpoint in the stock market, um, that will be what I'm going to kind of keep an eye on. I think, you know, as best I can. Um, but I, I think that that will be the fascinating thing to look at, say 10 years from now. Um, did anybody, you know, are there going to be any case studies of people that are getting really rich off of, off of leveraging these AI tools that are, that are becoming more and more sophisticated each yeah. and every day. Yes. Yes, it will be a sort of a tracker uh, again. It will be, and I think they will be coming, getting more and more sophisticated, such that you know, in the same way as chess masters can't beat uh, programs anymore. Mm -hmm. um, right. But that's a, a, a different model because of the logic of of chess. Um, certainly, well, well, I think I think we've got to be careful of, or not be careful, we've got to be wary of the possibilities of AI um, taking over uh, all sorts of interesting decision making. Well, I, and I think one of the things that we'll, we'll, you see with the stock market is sort of, you know, uh, as one, as an individual or some group of individuals identify as a, an exploitive strategy, a strategy that's that's more effective, right? That something, what happens is, is that knowledge becomes, people become aware of that knowledge, that, <laughs> then that strategy becomes no longer effective, right? Once, once everybody, you know, and so... Um, it would be an interesting thing with AIs, right? So let's say an AI tool were to come up with an effective, you know, stock trading strategy, you know, over at what period of time would, you know, that strategy become suboptimal or, or less effective yes. because, um, yeah, and, yeah. and I don't know the answers to those questions, but I think that that's what would happen is that, that there's this, this sort of balancing act that goes on all the time. Yes, I agree. It's um, it's a field which is uh, open for us personality psychologists to take more interest in. <laughs> well, I'll leave that to you and Ryan. I'll, I'll stick to the to the PR side of things over here and and, and running the podcast. But uh, Adrian, this has been a great discussion. But I do have one more uh, question before we let you go. Okay, and that is if if someone was looking to invest in the stock market for the first time. Mm. What personality characteristics should they look for when choosing a financial advisor? I mean, should they just go for the uh, pigeon? Yes, yes. I, 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 I reviewed the literature on this some, some years ago, 
um, you've got to have um, this adjustment, always adjustment. You know, the as we know from personality, prudence and adjustment predicts almost everything in, in the business world. So you want somebody who's prudent and adjusted. That's, I think, fundamentally very important. I like the idea of inquisitiveness, curiousness, openness to experience. That's, I think, important as well. Um, those, those would be, for me, the three factors that I, that, that I would look for. There's also the interpersonal sensitivity. You know, we, we've, when you look at these financial advisors, they often work in, in teams, um, and a lot of them don't manage their teams very well, I noticed. They don't get the best out of group decision-making. So you need some sort of sociability variables to sh- make sure that when people come together in small groups and pool their information to make their decision-making, that they have those skills. So in summary, you want people who are uh, adjusted, that they can... that they. Um, react well to success and failure. They're prepared to put in the hard work and the analysis that is required. They are inquisitive and open about all sorts of new opportunities and changes in this world. And they have the ability to deal with others who they use for their decision-making. That would be my answer to that one. Well, I think that's a great answer, and and I I don't really have much more to add to that, but I do want to say uh, thanks so much to Adrian for coming on the podcast today. It's always great to speak with you, always great to get your insights and and thoughts around any topic really surrounding personality psychology. Um, So thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It's more than a pleasure, and let me say congratulations on the podcast. I think they're forming a fantastic library and i think you know in years to come people will will listen to these for historical reasons and so forth i i find them absolutely fascinating well adrian that's that's so nice to hear coming from you because we we really uh appreciate you and all that you've done uh so to to hear those kind of flattering words from you really means a lot so so hopefully our audience feels the same way i hope so too they should do (laughs) well thanks for joining us adrian we really really appreciate it My pleasure. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 94. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.